Father, as we open your word this morning, on this beautiful morning that you provided to us, uh, Father, my mind is drawn in the time we had in worship back to the word and in places, Father, where you tell us that uh, this time and this age that we are a part of is temporary. It's not our home. It's not the place that you have designed to last for our sake, Father. In fact, Father, because it's corrupted, you tell us in your word that it must be replaced, that one day, Father, it must be destroyed and made new again. And Father, as I think on that and as I open your word again this morning and study and learn how the nation of Israel rejected your offer for grace in in their day and the day that Jesus arrived, it is a reminder to me, Father, that uh, I'm a part of a world that I am no longer a citizen of. And that I do not walk in this world as a member of it, but as a foreigner, a stranger, as you described Abraham was in his day. Father, I pray that that being true, that we would open the word this morning, hear the truth that you've prepared for us, listen to the Holy Spirit speaking in our hearts, and come to grips, Father. Take, take note of the fact that we should not own this world, we should not allow it to own us, we should not... Consider it, Father, the thing we treasure, that we can be in it and we can be among those who are in it and we can be a witness and a light to them, but let us never, Father, forget where our true allegiance lies, where it is, Father, we place our hope and that place that we look forward to being with you in one day. Let that remain, Father, always on our hearts. Give us eyes for eternity. And then, Father, as we study your word and as we are built up in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, let us go out in this world and bring others to that truth as you give us opportunity. So, Father, let us see this as our training, as our time to be built up for the good work of the ministry. We are in class, Father. We are in basic training. We have a job to do that you call us to do. And let us take seriously that training so that we would be well equipped to do that work. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, last week, as we went into our Easter service, we decided to stay in chapter 11 of Luke rather than to go off and do something unique for the day. I think that served us well. I hope you agree. It was a lesson that I think tied well into the Resurrection Sunday celebration. This week, we're back again in chapter 11, picking up where we left off on Jesus' rejection by the nation of Israel and on its significance and on the consequences that come to the nation of Israel as a result. We will also address this topic once more as we go into chapter 12 next week uh, because it does relate as well to some of the early events of that chapter. But this chapter really puts a conclusion to it, at least for the most part. So remember with me, for the last two weeks, including Easter, we examined why it was significant that the nation of Israel saw the miracles that Jesus did, and in particular the miracle of casting out a mute demon, and why that specific miracle was so telling And we understood why, as the crowd saw that obvious sign and understood that obvious sign, but yet still rejected it, how they were bringing judgment upon themselves. And then we saw, as the leaders of the nation of Israel, the Pharisees, saw that same sign, they went a step further than the crowd. Not just rejecting him, but also in declaring that the power by which he did these miracles came from Satan. Declaring that he was indwelt or he was under Satan's control. And I want you to keep in mind, that wasn't merely slander. It wasn't simply some cheap shot. These guys decided they wanted to bring Jesus down, so they throw out this accusation, oh, he's just doing it with the power of Satan. No, they believed it. That was their rationalization. 
That was their way of explaining to themselves and to the crowd what they were seeing. And in that misdirected belief, they assured themselves and their generation judgment. And we'll look more at that again this morning. So as we begin this morning, in verse 27 of chapter 11, Luke inserts what at first glance is just a passing detail, this, this aside in the story. But it's one that he's going to use, Jesus is going to use, to emphasize the significance of the moment, of what's happened as the nation of Israel has rejected him. Look at Luke 11:27. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. And we're going to pause there just for a moment because this is a little aside before we get back into the main line of the teaching. Luke tells this, this story about a woman whose exclamation comes in the moment of the teaching we've already been studying. She starts, Luke starts it by saying, while Jesus was saying these things. Luke is the only one to record this event. And he places it right in the middle of this experience where Jesus is being rejected on the basis of the Pharisee's comment. Now, let's look at just for a moment what the woman is actually doing here. It's obvious, I think, she's making a compliment. She's making essentially an indirect compliment of Jesus. The line of thinking is pretty simple. By complimenting his mother, by saying how special she was as being his mother, the woman is inferring at how special Jesus is. By association, she's making a compliment of Jesus. And this is natural. We do this same sort of thing, right? It's not an unusual for us to compliment somebody that way. You'll often see a baby, for example, and you might comment about how good the baby looks by saying something like, well, you must have had some good-looking parents, or you know, things like that, where we're really talking about someone else, but the issue is obviously the, the person we're looking at. But this woman's comment also reflects a deeper line of thought, one that's very significant for the moment. For the, and in fact, it actually explains to some degree what's going on in the crowd and why they're rejecting Christ in the way they do. It reflects a very Jewish way of seeing honor and glory. And she's saying not just that, you know, I I think you're a wonderful person, Jesus, and therefore your mother must have been a wonderful person. She's really saying that Jesus' mother was blessed to have such a good son, and it was on the basis of the connection between the two, on the basis that they were family. And in order to address this thinking, in order to really unfold it for you, to explain it to you, what I need to do is take you back to a couple of places in the New Testament. First, in Romans with Paul, teaching in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, just three verses here. Listen to Paul in Romans. He says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. Very simple set of verses. Most of you may have heard them at some point in the past. And they mean essentially this. To be counted a child of God, to be blessed, in other words, in that way, has nothing to do with your human bloodline. Who you're born from has no determining factor in whether or not you're going to be blessed by God to determine whether or not you're saved. There's no special birthright that determines who's blessed. Rather, those who are the child of the promise are the ones who are blessed, meaning those who are by faith, a believer as Abraham was, as Isaac was. Paul says it another way in Galatians. In Galatians 3, chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, 
Those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Paul tells the Galatian church here that anyone who shares the faith of Abraham is a son of Abraham by faith. And that person will inherit all the blessings that were promised to Abraham and his descendants. That promised blessing that Abraham received back in Genesis was always intended by God to be a spiritual birthright, not a physical birthright. And the way Paul proves that first in Romans and then in Galatians is to say, remember, Isaac isn't the only son that Abraham had. He also had Ishmael. But Ishmael didn't get those promises, did he? So it's not merely a bloodline relationship that determines who's blessed in the way God intended it. It is a spiritual blessing that passes down according to faith. Those who would believe as Abraham believed will join the family of God spiritually and share in Abraham's blessings. That's why Paul says when he was told, Abraham was told, all the nations will be blessed in you, God was prophesying, he was predicting how even Gentile nations one day would be blessed through Abraham's line, but by faith. Now the reason Paul spends so much time in Romans and again in Galatians on these issues is the same reason why we have to address it today for this woman. There were people, Jews, in the early church, Christian Jews in the early church, who were confused about what it meant to be blessed. They had looked upon their Jewish heritage as the foundation for their blessing, and then they had placed their belief in Jesus on top of that. Which is why in the Galatian church you had men come in and say, you have to be circumcised. Because you first have to be a Jew before you can then accept Jesus and be saved. And that's why Paul and Galatians had to spend so much time writing to that church and say, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Those of you who came to, to, to salvation by faith now want to return and do it under the law, meaning the law of circumcision and the law of Moses. Those people were confused because they thought that they first had to achieve some special place with God by virtue of a birthright of being Jewish before then they could be available to believe in Christ and be saved in that way. It's a false gospel, and Paul had to correct it for the Galatian church. That's exactly the kind of thinking that has led this woman to exclaim this flattering praise on Jesus. She assumes that any Jewish mother who had the opportunity to birth someone like Jesus would be blessed by God. Now, I don't mean blessed just in the simple sense of it was an honor. It was a good thing. It was a, 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 you know, it's, it's nice for a mom to have a good son. That's all true, but that's not what she's saying. She's saying blessed in the ultimate sense of the word, in the sense of God pouring out, spiritually speaking, eternal blessing upon the mother. You and I might say it this way, that she would be saved by that act. That by giving birth to Jesus, surely she'll be blessed, surely she'll be saved, surely she will please God. That's the implication that the mother is making by her statement. Now, she doesn't think it that deeply, I'm sure. She's just reacting out of her own nature and her own experience and her own understanding. She's just trying to compliment Jesus. But in what she said, she revealed a mistaken assumption about where blessing comes from. And that's why Jesus responds the way he does. That a family relationship, a blood relationship, is not the basis on which God is going to bless anyone. Now, we already acknowledge that Mary was, in fact, blessed by the fact that she had Jesus. It was a good thing for her, in other words, blessed in the simple sense of the word. But we don't go to the next step and assume that she was automatically then saved, blessed eternally because of that act. Jesus responds quickly to the woman. He says, on the contrary. He's saying to her, you, you got it completely wrong. It's nothing like what you're saying. You couldn't be more wrong is what Jesus is saying. He says, the one who is blessed is the one who hears the word of God and observes it or maintains it. The word in Greek, philoso, it means to guard, 
to protect something because you treasure it. But it means essentially in its usage here to do it. Now understand, Jesus is not insulting his mother. I mean, if you had that impression out of what I'm saying, well, let me correct that. He's not disagreeing with the woman in the sense of trying to imply that somehow Mary was not blessed. He's not even going down that road. He's talking about a different issue. Obviously, Mary was blessed, but her blessing had nothing to do with her opportunity to birth and raise Jesus. Mary's opportunity to be blessed came in the same way that it came for every man or woman because she had faith in and did God's word. She heard God's word and she did it. And you can go back with me as we studied in the early chapters of Luke as she receives the angel and the messenger who explains to her what's going to happen. And she accepted what she was told, as miraculous as it was, being a virgin, she said. And she guarded that in her heart, we're told. By faith in God's word, she was blessed. She received the grace that God gives. Remember the words of Paul again in Romans 10 now, Romans 10:17. He says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And then James adds to that in James chapter 1, verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he's looked at himself and he's gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of man he is. But one who has looked intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So those who hear the word, according to Romans, and believe, they are the ones who are being blessed. And then, on top of that, Paul, uh, James says, those who keep the law of liberty, the law of Christ, in other words, the law of what he gave to the lawyer, love your God and love your neighbor. That is now the law we're under, if you will, the law of Christ. Those who do that will be blessed, we're told. So Mary was blessed because she heard the word of God, she believed God, and then she proved her faith by obeying God. To say that Mary was blessed on the basis of her role of motherhood, if we were to go along with what this woman is saying, that she was blessed in the ultimate sense of the word because she gave birth to Jesus, we would be saying that she was blessed on the basis of her works, wouldn't we? Which is a false teaching. I think one of the reasons why the Catholic Church, and many of you know I grew up in the Catholic Church, I I, I spent many years in the Catholic Church, I think one of the reasons why they've falsely elevated Mary to the status of an idol. They they now call her sinless from birth. They call her the co-redeemer with Christ, as the Pope has declared her to be. I think one of the reasons why they do that is because they've elevated her works over the fact of her faith. And it was her work of being the mother of Jesus that now takes prominence in their mind versus the simple fact that like every sinner, born as a sinner, she required grace by faith to be saved. But in her work, she proved that faith to be true. Scripture also tells us, remember in Ephesians 2, 2, 8, and 9, that grace comes to us by faith, for it is a gift of God, lest no man may boast. If Mary could go to heaven on the basis of her work as mother of Jesus, then she would have right to stand before God and boast. But no man will be able to do that, we're told. No man, no woman will be able to boast before God. All will have the same basis for standing before Christ at the judgment seat. It will be because she believed in God's word. So Jesus has just begun to explain to the crowd in the earlier verses about this penalty for rejecting him and rejecting his word. And then he responds to this woman's comment in the moment because it just makes for a great opportunity for him to prove the point back to the crowd. Hey, it's not who you are. It's not who you know. It's not who you were born from. It's not who your mother was. It's what you do with my word. 
And those who hear it and obey it will be blessed. And it was in that moment that they were in the midst of denying his word and denying his miracles. Look where he goes next. He uses this exchange now as a springboard to come back into the main conversation and and use a couple of examples out of the nation of Israel's history to prove his point even further. In Luke 11 now, verse 29, as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In verse 29, we're told the crowds now are still increasing. And as I read through these verses and as I remember the setting we've studied already, I begin to get a picture in my mind. Maybe it's the right one, maybe not. Maybe you share it with me, I don't know. But here's what I'm feeling as I read these verses. You have the crowds continuing to come in and and collect in this moment. Continuing, we're told, to ask for a sign. To ask for a sign. Now, what do they mean by that? What What do you think they're asking for? They're asking for Jesus to prove to them that he is the Messiah. So there's at least enough of a suspicion. There's at least enough of an interest in the crowd that they suspect he might be the Messiah. That, you know, you don't come up to pure strangers and say, can you give me a sign if you're the Messiah or not? There's no basis for that conversation. But there certainly has been enough evidence proven already that he is the Messiah, that it's piqued an interest in an unbelieving crowd. Yet they keep coming back more and more for signs. They've not only not believed the signs they've already been given, but they continue to ask for more, which in, this is where I begin to get a picture in my mind. The text to me begins to give the sense that this crowd has almost turned to mocking a little. Maybe not overtly, maybe not you know, making fun of him and laughing at him in the moment, but maybe egging him on a little bit here now. Give us another sign, you know, almost like a circus. Give us another trick. Do another one. And without any real interest in the truth, without any real heart, willingness to listen to what he's saying and believe it, merely now as a spectacle. And in that, they're beginning to mock him. And this actually begins to remind me a little bit of what we read earlier in Luke when he's in Nazareth. Remember, he's, he's in Capernaum doing wonderful miracles. He goes to his own hometown, Nazareth, shows up and declares himself to be the Messiah, reading out of Isaiah in the synagogue. And then he looks him in the eye and he says, I know what you're thinking. You say to me, physician, heal thyself. Why don't you do the miracles here that you were doing in Capernaum? And then he answers the question for them, and he says, because you don't have faith, I can't do those miracles. And we studied back then, it was on the basis of their interest in him that he would not perform miracles. Whereas Capernaum asked him to do miracles because they wanted a sign to know whether to believe in him or not. In Nazareth, the tone was totally different. We've heard you have these abilities. We've heard you're being declared the Messiah. Uh, Prove it to us. Do something to prove it to us. Do what you do in Capernaum so we'll see if it's true. It's a skeptical, cynical test versus a true desire to know the truth so as to believe if it is true. See the fundamental difference between the two? Some people go to the story of Gideon out of Judges 6 and they use that as a similar example. Why does God entertain two different requests from Gideon for a sign for the fleece, wet or dry? Because it's in Gideon's heart to obey. He simply wants to know what is God's will. He wants to do the right thing. But there's others who would ask for a sign and they get no sign because their interest is not in doing anything God wants them to do. It's in trying to be satisfied, fleshly satisfaction that what they're seeing is true without believing 
without a believing heart. Instead of giving him a sign, what does Jesus do? He declares first that this generation is wicked. Now, when I say generation, I, I want you to understand what he's referring to. It's the same thing he's been referring to in Luke 11 all along. The men and women who were alive in the nation of Israel in that day. That is the generation we're talking about. And it's declared to be wicked because it demands signs. Now, remember, he's not saying that asking God for a sign is bad. It's in this context that it was wrong. It's in the way they're doing it. It's in their intention behind asking for the sign that they are showing their wickedness. They're demanding signs, and it's wicked because signs have already been given that were more than sufficient to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, and yet it did not impress upon them that he was. They rejected it. They credited it to Satan. And as we move past this, I hope you understand the seriousness of doing this in our own walk. There are times in our lives when we're going to ask God for direction. We should ask him for direction on everything that we seek to do in his will. And we're going to ask him maybe even for a sign. In fact, I sometimes suggest to Christians that we don't do that enough. We aren't willing to make... I think this is how it goes in my mind. Maybe I'm speaking for the crowd. Maybe I'm just me. But you sit there and you say, I need to know whether I should do this or this. I could ask him for a sign. I could do like Gideon did. I could come up with something and ask God to satisfy a specific action, knowing that if it comes out the way I want, it'll be obviously God. You know, God... The wet fleece, dry ground kind of example where, you know, the only way it could happen, the way I'm describing it, is if God actually does what he can do. And so I throw that out, and then God's going to answer the sign. And yet I don't do it. I have the idea. I realize it's probably biblical. I should probably ask God for a sign so I know as well. And yet I stop short of actually doing it. And in my case, and I don't know if this is yours as well, in my case, I stop because I'm afraid he'll answer it. And I won't believe it. Right? Think of, it in this, think of it in these terms. Come up with an example like this. Uh, God, I don't know whether I should go to this Bible study that I'm planning on going to or whether I should you know, turn left here and go to the Spurs game that I have tickets for tonight. And you know, I probably should be going to the Bible study. I know I need to go there, but I got these tickets free today and I really want to go to the Spurs game. Nothing wrong with going to the Spurs game, but I just want to know which one you want me to do today. God, there's a light up there. If, it, if it's green, I'm going to drive through it and I'm going to go to the Bible study, and if it's red, I'll know you're telling me to stop and go to this first game. Now, here's the problem. It doesn't take an act of God to turn a light red or green, right? So whichever way it is, you're going to have doubt in your mind in the moment about, okay, yeah, but what if it was a coincidence? Okay, it's, it's saying red, but you know, maybe it was just coincidence, and how do I know God actually did that anyway? What should I do? See, the problem with asking for a sign is you have to be believing that when it actually occurs, however it occurs, that God was actually doing something in the moment. It wasn't just chance. And then act accordingly. I think that's the challenge. The challenge isn't in asking for the sign. The challenge is in going through with it. You know what Gideon asked for? Gideon was taking 300 men against an uncountable army of Midianites. And he says, if you really want me to go do this, if you're really with me, God, make this fleece dry on a wet day and vice versa. Well, at the point where it's answered, you've got to go do it. But think about that for a minute. 300 men, countless army. Don't you ever stop and say, well, wow, that was stupid. What was I saying? God's not going to work like that. And look at that army. I can't possibly go fight them. You, you see the logic that starts to overtake faith. And that's what God is saying as, as we look at the scripture here with Jesus. He's saying, you had obvious signs. You don't want to accept them. You want to come back to the well for more and more and more signs. And at some point, a sign, a request for a sign actually makes a transition. What starts as an evidence of faith, right? I believe in you, God. I want to do your will, so I ask for a sign. That's, a, that's evidence of faith. What starts there ends up being proof of unbelief. Because in the person who never stops asking, 
they're actually demonstrating they have no faith in God and no trust in Him and, no, and they're not looking for Him. They're looking to be fleshly satisfied. And the challenge for, us, for each of us is to know that, that point. Where asking for signs has stopped becoming evidence of faith and started becoming an evidence of, if nothing else, our disobedience and perhaps even unbelief. That's the, the concern. God does not want hearts that are hard and ears that are closed. He wants for those who would seek Him with an open heart, willing to do what He answers. 1 Chronicles 28.9 As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. That was David's advice to Solomon. And in a nutshell, what he said is, serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. If you seek him, he's going to let you find him. He's going to answer your seeking. But only if you have a whole heart and a willing mind. Just like we described in Judges 6 with Gideon. The habit of asking for a sign over and over again is a dangerous habit if you never act on anything God tells you. To the crowd, he says no sign is going to be given. What he means, of course, is no more signs are going to be given because he's already been giving them signs. Jesus emphasizes the point with these two illustrations. Let's look at the first one, Jonah. You all know the story of Jonah? A lot of kids know the story of Jonah. A lot of people grow up knowing the story of Jonah, but I don't know that most of us really understand the spiritual significance of the book of Jonah. It's a wonderful study, by the way. I'd love to do it sometime. I always enjoy teaching Jonah. For tonight, or this morning, we obviously will not teach the book of Jonah, though you probably have fear of that. We're going to do just a few verses out of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. Jonah chapter 2, verse 10 Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now, do you know the story? He's a prophet of the nation of Israel. He's told to go to an enemy of the nation, the Ninevites, and proclaim the word of God to the Ninevites. And Jonah runs away from that responsibility. The reason he's in a fish is because it's the only way God could get him to Nineveh. As he's trying to flee God, God captures him by a fish in the ocean, and the fish literally swims to Nineveh, and about the third day as Jonah gives up in the belly of the fish, it's just perfect timing because he's on the shore of Nineveh. Blah! Right there on the shore. What's interesting about this is, more than anything, is the reason why he didn't want to go. Do you know the reason why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? It was not because he was afraid of failure. It was because he knew he would succeed. He was afraid that if he went to Nineveh and preached the word of God, Israel's enemies would be saved. And he didn't want to see it happen. It's interesting, isn't it? Well, God got him there anyway. Verse 10 of chapter 2 told us he was vomited up on a dry land. Now look at chapter 3, verse 1, just a few verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. <laughs> you bet he, about that point he's wishing it had only been one time, right? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city, one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. So the people of Nineveh, they see a miraculous sign. Now this is where it ties into Jesus' teaching. What was the sign they saw? Now remember, Jonah didn't want to be there. He doesn't want them to be saved. My guess is that the most he probably said is what was just recorded right here. Forty days, and you're going to be overthrown. Okay, I did what I had to do, God. Next thing you know, huge city revival out of just that, out of him proclaiming that to them. Based on what sign then? What was the sign that Jonah gave to that city? 
It wasn't merely his proclamation of the word. There was a true sign involved. But you have to have in your understanding a picture of what it looks like to get vomited out of a fish. You've been digested for three days. Your skin is probably bleached white. You may not have any hair left at that point. I mean, God sustained Jonah, there's no doubt. But I don't want you to get in your mind this thought that somehow he was in this, you know, hermetically sealed mayonnaise jar in the stomach of the fish. He was exposed to the fish. That's why after three days he said, okay, I give up. The amazing thing to me is why did it take three days in that situation to finally give up? But three days later he says, I want out. A man gets vomited out of a fish, looks like a walking ghost, and comes into the city and says, God's going to judge your city. Yeah, that's a sign. That's a pretty big sign. And it was enough that 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 group, with the influence of God, obviously with the power of the Holy Spirit, believed and came to believe in God's Word. And then there's the case of the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South. We'll look at this one just for another moment or two. This is in 1 Kings chapter 10. You didn't know you were going to have to page so much today, I guess, but it's a good exercise. 1 Kings chapter 10. Let's read the story starting in chapter 10, verse 1. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with difficult questions. So she came to Jerusalem with a very large retune, with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king, which he did not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers, and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these ser- of your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. She gave the king 120 talents of gold and very great amounts of spice and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices come in as that which the Queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. It's a very short story, a very powerful story. When the queen appears in Solomon's court, what does she say about herself? She says, I was anything but convinced that the reports I heard were true. So she arrives an unbeliever, curious, you know, inquisitive, but yet unconvinced. She didn't believe those reports. And when she sits in his court, and she presents him with these difficult questions, she says they're a test. She's coming with doubt. She's coming with, without belief. But she's coming with tough questions because if he can answer these questions, I'll believe him. I'll trust in him. And so she's testing to see if he's the man she heard he was, if he's a man who speaks with the wisdom of God. And then we're told in verse 3, nothing was hidden from Solomon, which means God gave him all the wisdom he needed to answer those questions perceptively. And when the queen hears that wisdom, the wisdom of God, the splendor of the kingdom is there. She sees all that God has done through, through Solomon in the kingdom of, of Israel. She has a changed heart. She says it herself. In verse 6, she admits that what she's heard is true. In verse 9, she acknowledges God is the source of that blessing. And then she herself blesses the name of the Lord. Sadly, she likewise, we're told, just like those in Nineveh, are going to stand up on the day of judgment with Christ and be those who would condemn the generation of the nation of Israel who in their day rejected Christ. Because unlike the queen, 
when they came in disbelief and curiosity, because that's what they're doing, right? The crowds are showing up kind of as a spectacle. Let's see about this guy who says he's the Messiah. Let's see if he can do some signs. They have the same skepticism. They have the same doubt. They're showing up. And then when they hear the wisdom of God spoken through Jesus, just as God spoke wisdom through Solomon, they don't believe it. They remain in their unbelief. They reject it. They refuse to turn their hearts toward that truth. And most stinging of all, when you look at these examples and you apply them to the moment, the most stinging aspect of both of them is that in both cases you have examples of Gentile people who knew nothing of a Messiah, who have no understanding of the laws of God, who are not God's people, and yet they came to faith on the basis of, in the first case, what? A sign. And in the second case, what? The word of God. The words of wisdom coming from Solomon. Those two things were enough to bring two groups of Gentiles to belief. Yet in the day that a greater sign and greater wisdom came in the person of Jesus Christ to the people who were knowing about it and looking for it, they reject it and call it Satan. And that is why he says this is a wicked generation that will be judged. John 20, 29 says this, Jesus said to them, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Speaking to doubting Thomas. He says, Because you've seen me, you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. That's how he responds to Thomas. He concludes this discourse with a familiar comparison. We'll end with a few more verses here out of Luke chapter 11. It's a series of verses that will sound familiar because it's a kind of teaching Jesus has used on numerous occasions. In Luke 11:33, he says, No one after lighting a lamp puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket, but on the lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body is also full of light. But when it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illuminated as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. We've seen Jesus use this example before. I've just said that. He used it earlier in connection with the parable about the four seeds. Do you remember? He taught in that point that those who have been enlightened with the truth should reflect that change to the world. They should produce seed. Remember we called it the condition for Christian. Those who mature to the point of actually reproducing themselves through the word of God. He's using it here in a similar way, but he applies it differently. He applies it differently. In the first time in chapter 8, he used it to focus on the one producing the light. You and I. Those who are believers, we should not take our light and hide it. We should make it known so that we can reproduce so that the light in us might have opportunity to influence others and that through that God would bring more to faith. That's what he meant by reproducing. Here he's using it in a different sense. Here now the focus is on the one who sees the light. Rather than the one producing it, now we're looking at it from the other side of the equation, the one who's seeing the light. In this case, obviously, they're seeing the light of Jesus himself, the light of the world. You can make the same application for us today as we reflect his glory in our own life, hopefully. But here he's beginning to speak about those who might happen to see the light of the truth. And if their eye is clear, I mean, think about it like glaucoma. If your eye is clear, the light penetrates and you see it. And they are able to open, be open to the truth because their vision, their spiritual vision is unobstructed. And those are people who would receive the light. And by the receiving of the light, they're filled by it. Their body is filled with light. But when the eyes of the unbeliever are bad, and in this context what we're talking about is someone who is not spiritually open to the truth. Their eyes are not looking in the way that they would have to, spiritually speaking, to see and believe the truth. The light doesn't penetrate, in other words. 
That person's body is filled with darkness. And take note here, there's no mixing. There's no mixing. You're either full of light or you're full of darkness. There's no halfway. You're either filled by the light of the truth or you're consumed by darkness and ignorance because one replaces the other. And he warns the crowd. And this is, again, a warning touching on the very point of their rejecting him now in this moment. He says to those, and I think particularly to the Pharisees, he says, if you think you know the truth, if you think what you believe and what you hold on to right now is the truth, you ought to be careful because it may in fact be false. And of course, in this case, it is. That's what he means when he says, if the light in you is darkness. Thinking they are filled with the light, their hearts are actually dark. Thinking they know the truth, they're clinging on to the falsehood of the enemy. And he ends by saying that if they reject that darkness completely, leaving none of it in them, then he says they could be filled by the light. How would we express this today? Going to an unbeliever, trying to explain the same principle to them. You've got to reject all the darkness that's in you before the light of the truth can come in and fill you. We use the word repentance, right? Now, we're not saying repentance in the sense of repent of every sin you've ever done. Try it. I, don't even, I mean, I don't know how you could do that. It's not a physical possibility to do that. You couldn't list them all. You don't even know them all, for that matter. So we're not saying that the repentance step of faith is an enumeration of your sin and a line-by-line line rejection of each and every one. That's not what we mean by repentance. It's in this sense of spiritual darkness, repenting of a works-based theology, repenting of an idea that says, I will earn my own salvation, or I will obtain it in some way that is not the way God has provided through Scripture. I repent. I turn away from a life apart from the Gospel, and I turn toward the truth of Christ on the cross as my sole opportunity for salvation. And in that, God will begin to do a work in us that eventually reduces sin by the process of sanctification as we yield ourselves to it. But it is not a turning away from every physical sin I've ever committed that is a prerequisite to belief. It is more rather a rejection of darkness, darkness in the spiritual sense, turning your back on the religion of the enemy in all its many forms and accepting only the truth of the gospel. Isn't it remarkable how the message of Scripture never varies? I don't know if you've had that experience, but as you study Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the storyline never varies. From Genesis to Revelation, either we serve the enemy or we serve God. Either we are children of disobedience or we are children of God. It all depends on where we place our faith and trust. You're all of one or you're all of the other. There's no in-between and there's no going back. You start as one, by grace you go to the other and you stay there. For those who trust in themselves or in false gods, whatever form they take, their hearts are darkened, they do not have the truth, they are children of the enemy. For those who trust in God and God alone according to his word, to Christ specifically, there is mercy and there is grace everlasting. We're going to conclude chapter 11 next week and we'll enter chapter 12, of course. And in that chapter, as we finish it next week, we're going to look as Jesus accepts another invitation to eat at the house of one of those unbelieving Pharisees. And it's an interesting exchange. It leads us into chapter 12, and into chapter 12 we will actually conclude uh, the significance of his rejection. But let's leave today, going out of here today, resolved, I would hope, as a church family, as a group of believers, to do everything God calls us to spread this truth to others. You know, you don't have to come prepared with a Bible tract that explains the details of the Christian doctrine. You really don't. That comes later. I didn't get saved with that. I got, I got that after I was saved. But what I had to be explained, what was revelation to me, was that it's this simple. It's all or nothing. It's following the enemy, following God. 
And anything other than a true and complete trust in Christ is adding works to the gospel and therefore it is another gospel. Pull all of that away and say, who do you trust? What gets you to heaven? A conversation like that where God gives you opportunity is a powerful conversation if you never let it get off that point. And that's our calling, to be witnesses to the world in that way, to being used by God in that way. Hopefully, to keep as few as possible of our generation to be condemned in the same way that those in Jesus' generation will be on Judgment Day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we finish. And Daniel, I invite you up to end us in one more song of worship this morning. Father, I do pray for a heart that is burdened with those in this world who are filled with darkness. Father, sometimes as we've come to know you and grown in your love and grace and understood that our place, our secure place in the family of God is, has come on the basis of your grace and our faith, it is so easy, Father, to turn our back on the world and to look forward to the day of eternity with you and forget, Father, that there are yet so many around us who will be condemned on the day to come. And we were one of them. Father, uh, it's almost as if those who are on a sinking ship and step into a lifeboat turn their back on the ship and forget that there are still those aboard looking for a ride off. I ask, Father, that we would have a heart that's burdened and desires, Father, to be the one through whom you would rescue more. That we would not turn our backs on the world. We would not be content and satisfied with that which you've given us by faith. But we would look at it, Father, as merely the starting point. That we could be used mightily in the lives of others to bring them the knowledge of the truth. That we would find opportunity to reach out. Even in simple ways, Father. And then when we feel that burden on our heart, Father, when we ask for a sign even and you answer and we know what you wish us to do. Father, I pray you'd give us the courage to step out in faith to do as you've directed that we would not uh, deny your signs, that we would not turn our backs, Father, on those things you've shown us so clearly and use it as an excuse, Father, to remain complacent and idle. We may be small in number, Father. We may be powerless. But that's the way you want us, Father, because to you then goes all the glory. And we ask, Father, that you would use us in our current state, in our weak state. And uh, in doing that work, Father, bring great glory to yourself. We thank you for our time in the Word. Father, as always, we thank you for the opportunity to meet. You are so good, Father, to bring us here each week. And we do ask, Father, for yet another opportunity according to your will. Bring us back next week, Father. Let us continue to worship you and to praise you through study of your Word. And uh, if it be your will, Father, bring others as well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.